Before we begin this episode, a couple disclaimers. First, due to some recent interviews that I've done and some extra attention paid to the podcast and to the site, I suspect that there will be people here listening today that aren't familiar with the podcast or me in particular or what I'm about with what I'm trying to do here. So I want to remind the listeners that the audience for this podcast is cops and future cops. And you're welcome to listen along, of course, but understand that these ideas are framed from a law enforcement perspective, not just the general community or John Q. Public. Second, to cover such a topic, which I've been reluctant to do to this point, is almost impossible to conduct a complete and thorough analysis of such a complex situation and then form a response in audio format only that's one-sided and that is subject to misinterpretation or just missing something. It's impossible to cover every part of this topic and not miss something. So my disclaimer here is that this is already, by the very nature of the format, an incomplete discussion about what's happening. Next, it's impossible to know the way forward, to absolutely know what the right answer is. My views are subject to change, and the thought and scrutiny and study that has led me to this point is also going to continue and may lead me at some point to some new discovery, new idea, new thought in the future. And so, yes, I retain the right to completely change my mind at any point. And I encourage you to retain the same right. Lastly, throughout this whole experience, I have not been on a single skirmish line. I have not had bricks thrown at my head. I have not had Molotov cocktails thrown on my car or at me. And I certainly haven't been shot at. I haven't had people say some of the vile and hateful things that they've said to some in law enforcement over the last couple weeks. Things that they didn't deserve. Things that... Things that really question if it's worth it for a lot of people. And so, I am in some ways sitting up here on my high horse and sitting up here without some of that intrinsic anger of those experiences. And so I need to, and I think it's only fair, acknowledge that for the people that were on those skirmish lines and that were taking bricks and bottles to the head, that were having flaming objects thrown at them, that there is a very real and very valid anger about how they were treated. And yes, for the other side, that doesn't detract from their feelings as well. And I think that's the point. Both sides are feeling anger and hurt and sense of being misunderstood. But it is on both sides. It's not just the protesters. It's not the people calling for reforms or defunding or any of those things alone. It's also in the police. Police of all races, police with families, 
and husbands and wives and daughters and sons, some of whom have experienced some of this hate themselves over the last couple of weeks. Nobody's asked for that. And so those are my disclaimers before we begin this discussion. And there will probably be more. Aristotle, the famous and great philosopher, one of the smartest men on earth, once said that the mother of revolution and crime is poverty. With all due respect to Aristotle, I think he's wrong. But more on that later. There's no need for me to rehash the events that occurred in Minneapolis or surrounding the death of George Floyd or the worldwide unrest that it has provoked. There is literally anywhere else you can turn on earth for any of the coverage you want on those things. But I feel one thing needs to be put on record. What happened in Minneapolis to George Floyd was wrong. What happened in Minneapolis to George Floyd was murder. What happened in Minneapolis to George Floyd could happen anywhere. And what happened in Minneapolis to George Floyd is something that we need to come to terms with to figure out how to move on. I'm also, in this episode, going to avoid reciting statistics that argue that the police aren't biased in our shootings, uh, because though it may be true, it really doesn't matter. The one statistic I'll probably use here just now to prove that point is that about 0.00002% of law enforcement contacts end in a fatal shooting. Less than 1%, far less than 1% of all police contacts end in a fatal shooting. But for the people involved in those shootings, for the communities that are involved in them, and for the officers involved in that shooting, it doesn't matter what percentage it is. The fact that it happened is traumatic. It's violent. It's uncomfortable. And so regardless of how many zeros are after that point in point zero 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 two percent we need to remove the sanitized statistics from this discussion for the most part and talk about the actual events themselves. Because we can't use statistics to argue against emotions. It doesn't work. It's like telling your kids to calm down. But has that ever worked for anybody? I've been reluctant to speak on this too much because I wanted to bring something of value to the conversation, but I also wanted to listen first. I wanted to listen to the police and the protesters and the response on both sides and avoid a knee-jerk reaction. There were already plenty of people doing that. Also, perhaps naively, hopeful that current leadership would represent us well. And I think we've all seen that for the vast majority of the country, and of the world really, that hasn't happened. I was surprised, like many of you, at the global response to this event in Minneapolis around George Floyd. 
And I've heard from officers around the world, literally, in New Zealand and Australia and Paris and other parts of Europe and Canada. I've heard from these other officers that they are experiencing almost identical situations, almost identical friction and conflict with their communities as a result of what happened in Minneapolis. From an anthropological standpoint, it's fascinating. We're more connected than we ever were, and that includes our collective anger and angst. People in Paris have never met or never been, never met George Floyd or been to Minneapolis, and yet they still feel compelled to protest their version of interactions with police. So I've heard from officers all around the world. This isn't about Minneapolis or Atlanta or New York or even Paris or Sydney. This rage and friction is a global pandemic far beyond COVID. I've also been surprised at the vitriol of the cops and the nonsense that some are spewing in the online comments. Suddenly, so many of these sheepdogs have become more like chihuahuas yapping and nipping online, but without any bite or substance. A lot of brave cops, a lot of brave cops, have stood on the skirmish line the last few weeks, having bottles, bricks, Molotov cocktails thrown at them, only to have much of their work dismantled by a keyboard warrior with a good old boy attitude, and internet anonymity to back them up. This confluence of events has also brought to light the very uncomfortable reality that policing in the U.S., and apparently the world, is fraught with pervasive racism at the institutional and the individual level. The good news is, if you're listening, and if you have been listening to The Squad Room, You know you aren't the problem. You know that you are the solution. But to understand where we need to go, I want to first explore how we got here. At least how I see it presently. And again, remember, all opinions are subject to change when new information comes to light. This event has caused me, like many of you, to do some educating of myself on the past and on past practices. And just it so happens, as this was occurring, I was reading a book about the history of policing. Yes, that's what I do in my free time. Community policing is such a buzzword at this point. And people are often calling for more community policing as a response to the events like those around George Floyd or Eric Garner or any of these others. But I think it's exactly the problem. And I'll explain that in a little bit, but I think community policing is actually a major part of the problem. Early in the 20th century, policing was dealing with a lot of corruption and political influence, especially on the eastern seaboard and big cities. Police officers were promoted into the positions of the police through their political affiliations, and they were expected to enforce politically motivated laws, off-the-book laws, and downright corruption. So the reform efforts and technology at the time coincided and brought about what we typically refer to as the professional model of policing. And this uh, caused a lot of different things, including 
the rise of unions and civil service to protect the police from undue political influence, and also uh, more consistent standards and practices. Statewide peace officer standards and trainings bureaus that came in around these times. And the reform efforts pushed us, along with technology, from foot patrols, where we were heavily involved in the community, into automobiles, where we were in a more structured environment. And the rise of the 911 system early in the day churned policing from a neighborhood issue with a foot patrol officer and a beat officer who was dealing with local problems and local norms and local cultures into a 911 response model in which you would call 911 and the police would come. And as the emphasis on the response to 911 calls grew and grew, police shifted from the neighborhood solution to responding to 911 calls. And in that process, police became much less interactive with the community because they were judged and based on uh, their their evaluations were based largely on their ability to turn over the 911 calls to go from call to call to call and clear the calls that became the priority versus solving the neighborhood problems like a foot patrol officer might have done uh, a couple decades earlier but hopefully the idea was that this system would prevent some of the corruption some of the grift that occurred in those earlier times. And so cops had a large amount of discretion to, they went from a large amount of discretion to a large amount of regulation, standardized training, hiring standards, and the paramilitary structure all came about to control the police officer, the individual police officer a little bit more. Those aren't bad things. I'm just saying that's how it happened. And if, you're considering the time that this occurred when they're trying to solve police corruption where officers would literally go into businesses and demand money in order for protection. Anything to move away from that is a good thing, but there were some benefits to that idea of the neighborhood police officer who could actually solve the local problems. So the success metrics as they went and as nine one, the emphasis on nine one one grew, the success metrics uh, moved to things like calls for service, how many traffic citations or arrests, that's where we get quotas from, and the performance pressure that former limits an officer's discretion to spend their free time on some of these community things. It reduces community interaction because of the emphasis on that performance, and we're sequestered away from the public in our cars. Now, it just so happens that professional policing, this idea that the police are the experts and you should leave it to us to handle and solve crime, that coincided with a 30-year crime wave that really culminated with the crack and the gang wars of the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s. So as crime is skyrocketing, police are demanding more and more police services in a variety of ways, and they want us to be more involved in all of the problems in their life. And that's where community policing comes in. Community policing came out of the public's demand and dissatisfaction with professional policing. The Adam 12 uh, car of the cops just in the car or dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. All of that stuff was not good enough for the community because they were dealing with a lot of social disorder 
as a result of the drug crime and uh, the crack epidemic. Cops were, during the professional time, cops were more focused on quote-unquote serious crimes worthy of a police professional response. And social disorder crimes, some of the things that are, frankly, the bread and butter of policing these days, and the idea of the fear of crime, those weren't even considered the responsibility of the police at the time. Your typical police officer looked down on the idea of dealing with public intoxication and uh, low-level drug sales and prostitution and trespassing and the, the homeless guy sleeping on the stoop. Those weren't the problems of the police. And it wasn't until community policing that we accepted the responsibility to handle those things. So why did we accept that responsibility? That's a lot of extra stuff on your plate. If you're focused on just serious crimes and you want to stick your fingers into all the social disorder issues I just mentioned, plus many more, that just adds work. Well, in 1981, George Kelling and James Q. Wilson wrote an article for The Atlantic called Broken Windows. It was the first time any sort of order maintenance activities were argued to be a police problem. They published results from what was called the Newark Foot Patrol Experiment. In the 1970s, state grants in New Jersey put officers back into foot patrol positions and out of the cars. What was interesting was crime didn't go down, but citizens felt safer and more secure and had a belief that crime dropped. The fear of disorderly behavior exceeded the fear of being victimized by violent crime, even in a city like Newark. And if you've ever been to Newark, that's kind of shocking. People were more scared of being mugged or uh, having to walk past the drunk guy in the dark than they were of being violently attacked or murdered. So these footbeat officers had wide discretion to deal with the problems without making an arrest. And what happened in Newark was really interesting. They figured out that disorder and crime were inextricably linked. And if a window on a building is broken in an act of vandalism and left unrepaired, all the other windows would soon be broken as well. And it was the idea that a signal, it was a signal that no one cares. And so there you have the idea of broken windows policing. The idea that if you solve the small problems and you solve them quickly, you prevent bigger problems. So broken windows really gained traction in New York City and Newark uh, in the early to mid-80s when uh, Bill Bratton was chief of police or was, was chief of police of the Transit Authority and later became chief of uh, commissioner of NYPD. Rudy Giuliani appointed him and they tackled this idea of broken windows and community policing. They tackled it uh, first in the subways and dealing with the fare jumpers and uh, the people of the low-level crimes. And what they found was if they dealt with a, someone who was skipping out on a fare on the subway, and if they treated that as a crime, they realized that that same person was probably good for robberies, was carrying weapons, had warrants. And in this, by dealing with a fare jumper, they were actually decreasing crime overall. And over the course of the next decade, crime in New York City plummeted. If you've been in New York City... And in Times Square, anytime after 1998 or so, you can tell, you if you haven't been there before, it's a, it's a night and day difference. Even in my time living in New York City, when I first tried uh, lived there in 97 to when I last left there in 2000, the gentrification of New York City was visible even in that short time frame. So it works. Community policing 
at least in theory at the time, it worked. And so it was expanded from the New York Transit Authority into the New York NYPD and into other agencies throughout the country. And it worked wherever it went. Now, community policing really has three goals. And I mentioned a little bit of it earlier. But it's to reduce the fear of crime, reduce crime itself, and to reduce social order. One of the challenges of community policing is that there's no real agreed-upon definition of what it is and what it entails. I did a paper on it in college, and I found over 56 legitimate definitions for what community-oriented policing programs are. And if there's 50-plus definitions for the same idea, it'll tell you that nobody's being consistent from one agency to another. The one thing I will tell you is that if your agency claims to be a community-oriented policing agency and they just have a bike team to do it, that is not correct community policing. There's really three elements of a community-oriented policing program. The first is the one we all know about, the community partnerships, right? We need to engage with the community. We always hear that. But really few organizations except those that are already pro-cop participate. The people that typically go in with the cops on a program are the people who have a vested interest in seeing law and order upheld. Chamber of Commerce, business improvement districts, property owners, etc. We don't get a lot of the anti-cop crowd involved in our partnerships for good reason. Step two is organizational restructuring. And that means in order for community policing to work, you really need to lower and almost eliminate the hierarchical structure and the paramilitary structure that is still present in almost every organization in policing. We operate in these silos of responsibility. One police officer does a job in one beat and they don't have the freedom or the flexibility flexibility to solve problems in a way that they can see fit because it's a violation of protocol, it's a violation of norms, it's a, someone else's job to do it, someone else gets mad if you do it, some other union will beef you if you do it. So we continue to operate in these silos of job responsibility, and we have silos within the silo of law enforcement. We go out and fight crime and, and enforce the law, and then the judicial system, or the prosecutorial system prosecutes them, and the judicial system sentences them. But they're all done in silos, and they get one part gets handed off to the next with not a lot of back-and-forth input. And nuance gets missed oftentimes. So it almost makes it impossible to solve these complex problems or seek partnerships at the moment of the interaction with the public. The third element of a good community-oriented policing program is the proactive problem-solving. And we see that a lot, and that's the one we almost always get right. Enforcement on so, of social disorder crimes helps us prevent more serious crimes, and they're easy wins for the police. They're easy things to throw out in a press release, throw up on your social media page, and promote the idea of proactive policing takes guns off the street, takes drugs off the street. And it does. However, as the American public has invited law enforcement deeper and deeper into their lives, the line between police action, social disorder, and simple existence in a modern society is becoming blurred. 
So the question becomes, what is our priority as a society? And what do we want from our police? Overwhelmingly, the answer to that question of what we want from our police is proactive policing who deal with social disorder crimes. And we've used a lot of the same tactics and strategies that we've had. We've doubled down on those because they work. And then we can go back to the public and point out all of our successes. Yet without ever really having to get creative about long-term problem solving. A simple example would be a plainclothes unit. Like the NYPD's plainclothes anti-crime units at the precinct level. Now often known as the Jump Out Boys. Right? And a couple different names. But they're a proactive unit, and they're tasked with going out, making contacts, making stops, and finding guns and drugs. I've heard great things about this job, and it sounds like it's exciting and fun. And one of our past guests, Aaron Lohman, who's been on the show twice, is a member or was a member of this group at different times in his career. And it says they're very successful in what they do. And it makes sense. But we just keep doubling down on the same strategy. And I'll talk more about that strategy in a little bit. Another hurdle with community-oriented policing is a lot of the public don't want it. How many times have you been at like a coffee with a cop or any sort of uh, non-serious event or a public relations event and someone's telling you that you should be out there catching real criminals? Or if you're out there dealing with a drunk and he says the same thing? That was always frustrating to me. I'd take a guy to jail for DUI, and he'd be yelling at me that I should be out there catching real criminals. That's a crime. Driving under the influence is a crime. It, it's dangerous. It hurts people. There's a reason it's a crime. And so, yeah, I am out there dealing with the real criminals. And, buddy, that's you tonight. That always frustrated me. But there's a lot of people that have this perception that social disorder crimes are not the responsibility of the police. And as we're in this event right now, we're having a much bigger and bigger discussion about if that is, in fact, the way it should be. COVID, not the police shootings, has really shown a light on the friction between social disorder enforcement and civil liberties. Cops were being called for people wearing, not wearing masks on the streets, or they were chasing surfers down the beach, or they were arresting that mom in a park. Those really aren't crimes in the sense of what the police are tasked to do traditionally. But they are the kinds of things that people expect us to handle now. And in large part, it's because we kept pushing our standard community-oriented policing tactics of proactiveness and pushing and solving social disorder crimes. We kept pushing that further and further and further to the point that when anyone would call 911 with any problem, we would respond And we took the responsibility upon ourselves to solve that problem. Not once that I'm aware of. Was there ever any chief or sheriff or high up law enforcement uh, personnel who said, yeah, we're not going to that. That's not our problem. It's always been go figure it out and deal with it. And so we do. But then we end up dealing with things that really aren't a law enforcement issue, and we end up on the national news. Eric Gardner is an example. Eric Gardner was selling single single cigarettes, allegedly selling single cigarettes outside of a, a bodega. 
And the problem with that, yes, it's a law. It's a violation of a law. But it's about tax. He's not paying the tax on the on the cigarettes. And he's reselling a cigarette. Is that worthy of a police response? Or is that a Department of Revenue issue? I honestly don't know. I don't know. So where do we go from here? I know where we don't want to go. We don't want to go towards things that happened this week in Wilmington, North Carolina, where there were officers caught on camera saying horrible, deplorable things when their body camera was accidentally activated. Officer Kevin Pilner of the Wilmington, North Carolina police was tracking, was chatting with his corporal, presumably his supervisor, when he said he's ready for a civil war and, quote, we are just going to go out and start slaughtering them blank. I can't wait. God, I can't wait. Corporal Jesse Moore, his supervisor, who apparently left his spine at the station that night, tepidly responds, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Pilner doubles down says Civil War is needed to, quote, wipe them off the map. That'll put them back four or five generations. The problem is not that this conversation was accidentally recorded. The problem was that this conversation happened at all. Between three officers who took an oath, they clearly had no intention of keeping, upholding, or honoring. Also this week, saw this headline in Newsweek. Former police officers openly plotting to kill BLM activist Sean King. Sean King is not really one of the BLM leaders, but he has kind of co-opted some part in it. And I am not a fan of the man by any stretch of the imagination. I referred to him in a text message to a friend the other night as the left's Alex Jones of InfoWars. Sean is well known for mixing truth and fiction to get his point across. And he's very, very effective at it. But I personally have just seen too many times where the information that he provides is not accurate. So as that I don't trust him. I make that decision myself based on information I have found and reading about him, reading him, checking his sources and then checking the facts. And that is a determination I made for myself. I'm not advocating you make that same decision. I actually encourage you to make your conclusions on your own. But regardless of what you think about Sean King, this week he had some old and very long-retired officers from the Long Beach Police Department discuss in a Facebook group assassinating him. Now, they're very likely joking because cops have a very dark humor, and the way that some of these posts are written... I could even hear the dark humor in my head as they're talking about it. But regardless, these screenshots get sent to King, who then writes an article for, for Medium. And writing an article for, me, article for Medium is like me saying I did a podcast for my podcast. 
Medium will publish anything anybody puts out there. So it's not vetted. It's not uh, peer-reviewed. It's not journalism. It's just a chance for anybody to go out there and write blogs. And I read a bunch of stuff on Medium. But it's not where you should go for accurate and timely information or, or factual information if that's what you're really looking for. Because it's largely influenced by opinion. But regardless, the story that's off medium gets picked up by Newsweek and NBC News and LA Times and it's national news and then it's international news. And they all stick with the headline, former police officers openly plotting to kill BLM activist Sean King. Never mind that these officers have got to be in their 90s, some of them, and they haven't been on the job since 93. So yeah, they very likely are old and old school, but I don't know them. Never met them. But I just know that they don't represent current law enforcement officers because none of them were actually current law enforcement officers. And that doesn't make a difference to the public. All the public hears is former police officers openly plotting to kill. That never plays well. Both of these issues, Wilmington, North Carolina, and these retired Long Beach police officers, demonstrate two fundamental truths. One, we have a lot of work to do. And two, we are very often our own worst enemy. Let me be clear for a second, too. The attacks on cops around the country certainly feel like it's open season on law enforcement. Not just as an institution, but as individual human beings. Officers are no doubtedly being targeted. They're being followed home. Family members are losing jobs and fighting and anger pervade social media. This is not okay. And it's not just the cost of doing business. Nobody can, with any real heart, say that this is what they signed up for. No, it's not. That was never anywhere in the job description. Being followed home and having my wife chastised at the grocery store was never part of the job description of being a police officer. I gave an interview for TEDx in an online series recently. And it was 20 minutes to tackle a subject that has been decades, if not centuries, in the making. And it had an audience Q&A as well. And I feel like I was foolish to think anything of substance could really be achieved in 20 minutes. And I armed myself with facts and statistics and data. But this is an emotional issue. And you can't fight emotion with facts. Because facts are different than the truth. Regardless of the facts or the definition of truth that you subscribe to, it's obvious that the system is broken and in need of real change. An entire world does not erupt in anger and violence over the death of one person. Just look to January when Kobe Bryant died unexpectedly in that helicopter crash. The world did not erupt in riots. The world erupted and collective grief. A grief so palpable and so strong that I couldn't really comprehend it. I was even in L.A. for at the, on the day of one of his memorials and blown away by the amount of fans that just came to stand at Staples Center and pay respects. 
And that scene was repeated throughout the over the world by people who've never met him. And I wonder why that reaction to that event and then a much more violent and aggressive and riotous response to this one. Now, there's other people, too. Other people that have done a lot of things to advance the causes of black Americans and other minority groups who've been murdered. Murdered by somebody else, and yet there's been no violent reactive response. Notorious B.I.G., Tupac Shakur, Gianni Versace, Harvey Milk, Jam Master J., Chauncey Bailey, all murdered, all cut down, all had done something to advance some cause of equality, but no riots. They were far more impactful in their time on earth than George Floyd was able to be by the time he was killed. I see anger and confusion and despair in these murders, but not rage. What I think we often miss as individual officers is that our actions don't just represent us. They represent the entire profession and beyond, and that they represent the government. For many, the government has never been seen as an ally, but a threat. The liberty interests of the individual are almost always drastically affected by their government institutions. And that's true worldwide. It's easier to see in authoritative and fascist regimes, but it still does happen even here. Therefore, there will always be a natural tension between a government and a people, regardless of how good you are at community policing. So if I, Garrett Tesla, as an American father, husband, and human being, shot and killed someone in the performance of my duties, no matter how justified I may be, I am doing it in part because of social and criminal justice policies that put me in a position where I am obligated, on behalf of the government, to act. Now, regardless of the justification, training, the nuance, or even the actions of the alleged offender, the state has taken a life. Like I said earlier, I want to avoid statistics and studies, but one demonstrates, I think, how we got here. And I've heard it used in numerous places to prove that cops aren't racist, but that's not the whole story. Roland Fryer is an economist at Harvard University. In When he was 30, he became the youngest professor to ever be awarded tenure at Harvard, ever. And in 2016, he did a study called An Empirical Analysis of Racial Differences in Police Use of Force. Now, it seems silly that I feel like I need to mention this, as if it's part of his resume and part of his bona fides. But Roland Fryer, excuse me, Dr. Roland Fryer, is black. And so after the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Gardner and a few others, he developed a study to pursue the idea and find out if police are in fact shooting black Americans more often than they are other races. And what he found was interesting. He found that in shootings, there was no racial difference, differences between uh, when an officer shot and killed a white man, a Hispanic man, or a black man, or anyone else. There was no racial differences in the, in the amount of shootings. 
But what was interesting was that in lower uses of force, everything from grabbing a hand to getting pushed up against the wall to pepper spray to taser to baton to putting handcuffs on to putting a knee in the back to taking it to the ground to baton strikes, everything lower than a use of a gun, blacks and Hispanics had 50% more likely chance to experience some use of force in their interactions with police. Now, many of these were just, like I said, minor things such as grabbing and handcuffing with or without an arrest. But this, as a cop, this data makes sense to me. Cops interact with low-income populations more often because that's where the majority of crime victims and crime suspects live. And minorities are far more likely to occupy these neighborhoods than whites. That's not a statement of opinion. That's a statement of fact based on numerous studies in this area. They are contacted by the police more often. And when you have a concentrated population of criminals, force is more likely to be used, even if it's for a lawful arrest. The problem, and many good officers see this, is that the problem is that honest and innocent people get caught up in that. A good example is New York City's stop and frisk program, a completely legal tactic that came out of community policing. In 2011, stop and frisk made 685,000 stops on citizens in New York City. It was essentially outlawed a couple years later, and in 2019, they only made 13, a little over 13,000 stops. In fact, last week, New York City NYPD just announced that they were disbanding the plainclothes anti-crime units that I talked about earlier, known as the Jump Out Boys. These units at the precinct level, were incredibly successful from an enforcement standpoint. 30% of their stops yielded guns, drugs, or warrants, or etc., or some arrestable offense. 30% is pretty great from a cop perspective. But 70% did not do anything. And from a PR standpoint, it's an abject failure. That means that 70% of the people that the cops stop and talk to question ask where they're going, ask for identification, ask to pat them down, have done nothing wrong. And they're caught in a very successful net because they know that that other 30% are just part of it. And that's not the cop's fault. That's not the individual cop's fault. That, that is a tactic I would completely employ in that city. And when you're tasked with going out and taking guns and drugs off the street, and you have consensual contact abilities, you're going to go out and talk to people. And if you talk to people and you notice maybe they're a little intoxicated, maybe they're a little high, maybe they're a little nervous, what's that bulge on their hip? What's that bulge in their waist? They're wearing baggy clothing. Am I concerned for my safety? Those are all things that completely justify searches. But to use them on that 70%, is unintentionally pervasive, or invasive, rather. And so there's this constant push and pull of policing between individual rights and the utilitarian order enforcement that we try to accomplish. We've known about and understood this inherent conflict for decades, and we've written it off as just the cost of doing business. It was just part of the deal. The same goes with pretext stops. It's just how you do business to get criminals off the street. And it made 
sense. But that cost of doing business turns out to be quite expensive. So back to my two fundamental truths. Again, we have a lot to do, and we're often our own worst enemy. There's work to be done, for sure. Most any cop is not directly responsible for the crisis that we're in, but we are responsible for fixing it. Why are we responsible? Why us? Because no one else is coming. Because we've accepted the role of guardian in it, and in it the oath to support and defend the Constitution. So where do we begin? I think we begin in Warsaw on December 7th, 1970. During World War II, the Warsaw Ghetto was one of the most atrocious examples of the Nazis' heinous genocide. Over a quarter million Polish Jews were kidnapped from Warsaw, tortured, and executed in the concentration camps in 1943 and 44. Twenty-six years later, Germany was run by a German chancellor by the name of Willy Brandt. Now, though Brandt had, was now the chancellor of Germany, effectively the president, their version of the president, he had been involved in politics since 1949 after the war, but he had actually been an enemy of the Nazi state as a young man. Born Herbert Ernst Karl Fraum in 1913, Brandt fled Germany as the Nazis came to power. As a political dissident, Fromm used aliases to avoid detection by the Nazis. He snuck into Germany under an alias of Gunnar Gosland, a Norwegian friend, and he was arrested in 1940 in Norway by the Nazis, but accidentally released. By this time, he'd formally adopted the pseudonym Willy Brandt. And after the war, he returned to West Germany to fix the wrongs of the Nazis. In 1969, Brandt became Chancellor of West Germany. And in 1970, Brandt visited the ghettos of Warsaw, where the Nazis had murdered and kidnapped so many people. On that trip, Brandt visited that m a memorial dedicated to the Warsaw ghetto victims. And he laid a wreath at the monument. Unexpectedly, Brandt dropped to his knees, and he remained there for a full 30 seconds. This event became known as the Warsaw Genuflection. And when he was asked by reporters about his actions, he replied, quote, Under the weight of recent history, I did what people do when words fail them. In this way, I commemorated millions of murdered people. Later, he told a friend about his kneeling saying that just laying the wreath was not enough. In 1971, Brandt won the Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2000, a monument to Brandt was erected in Warsaw, a statue of a German leader in Poland, only 55 years after World War II. Brandt's actions were not popular in Germany at the time, and he narrowly avoided a no-confidence vote. Now, I know that the connection between kneeling is a hot topic these days. 
personally, I think it's a bit absurd. Kneeling is shown as a sign of respect. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of acknowledgement. I kneeled when I asked my wife to marry me. I've kneeled when I've prayed at the graves of those lost. I've kneeled when I prayed in church. As a young kid playing team sports, if somebody got hurt, you would gather around and kneel and wait for them to recover. We've all kneeled to show some humility and reflection. And that's what Willie Brandt did that day. What can we learn from Willie? Here's a man who had every right to avoid responsibility for the Nazi war crimes. He fought the Nazis. He was imprisoned by them. He escaped from them. But when it came time to take responsibility as the German Chancellor and as the representative of Germany 26 years later, he took it. And now there's a statue of him at that spot. There's a Nobel Peace Prize with his name. Now, to be clear, I am not in any way comparing cops, and particularly modern-day cops, to the Nazis. But historical associations in parts of the country to the KKK are undeniable. Images of cops unleashing dogs and using fire hoses on the citizens, they may be in black and white, those images, but we all look the same. Uniforms look the same. Our clothing looks essentially the same. Brandt was bold because he acknowledged what was already obvious, that Germany was responsible, even if he had nothing to do with it. Policing is a proud and noble profession, but not without its dark spots. The race riots of the 1960s were only one generation removed. My dad was 21 years old during the Watts riots. In 1985, the move bombing in Philadelphia and I was eight years old. If you're not familiar with the MOVE bombing, the Philadelphia police dropped a bomb on top of the MOVE headquarters, which was a townhouse, and it killed six members of the MOVE organization, which were similar to the Black Liberation, uh, Black Panthers. It was a Black Liberation group. Killed six members in that townhouse, killed five children, and they burned down 65 homes when they dropped a bomb from a helicopter on top of a house. In 1992, during the L.A. riots, I was 15 years old. None of these events are terribly far removed from our collective consciousness, from our newspapers and our media. These are events that are easily accessible to any generation that's currently living. So we haven't progressed far enough to pretend that these events don't matter. And then you have Officer Pilner of the Wilmington, North Carolina Police Department in 2020 talking about how excited he was for a race war so he could go out and start murdering and slaughtering blacks. In the 26 years between the end of World War II and Willy Brandt's visit to Warsaw, Germans did a lot to bury and burn their past relationships with the Nazis. We haven't done enough. But again, that means there is opportunity to make it right. Willie took a knee to apologize for Germany's murder of millions of Jews. 
It seems the least we can do is acknowledge the past abuse, racism, and bad tactics, and then promote and promise an idea to do better. We are not culpable, but we are responsible. What happened in Minneapolis was bad tactics, regardless of policy. What happened in Minneapolis to Philando Castile was bad tactics. And what happened to Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, Oscar Grant, and even Michael Brown were all bad tactics. I'll add that my personal opinion after reading the DOJ report on the Michael Brown investigation, that was a justifiable shooting, but it was still bad tactics that led to it. Now, if you haven't turned this off yet, you'll realize I just committed a major sin, perhaps the original sin of policing. I just Monday morning quarterbacked other officers. I wasn't there. I didn't have all the facts. I get it. We are second-guessed by everybody, by our administration, by the media, by the general public, most of whom have no idea what it's like to live in our shoes. But we do know, and many of us can offer a better way. And perhaps this is the first step towards progress and reconciliation. Before college professors release a paper, it's peer-reviewed. Judges have appeals courts that armchair quarterback them all the time and overturn their decisions all the time, often with very harsh criticism. Doctors have medical boards that review their work. Lawyers have the American Bar Association that they must report to and they must answer to if they violate their oath. We've got to change the belief that we should not be scrutinizing and evaluating each other. I've made mistakes, plenty of mistakes. I've made tactical errors. And the only thing that's kept me from a violent use of lethal force has been luck. Luck in some way that the suspect didn't fight. Luck that the suspect left the gun at home that day. Or he left it under the seat of the car when I asked him to step out. No cop can go a career without a tactical or judgment errors. And I mean multiple. It's just not possible. But if we refuse to learn from these mistakes by refusing to think critically, we miss the opportunities to improve, and we are then doomed to repeat our mistakes. A moment ago, I said that we are not culpable, but we are responsible for resolving the issues of our profession's past. But if we repeat our mistakes, we go from responsible to culpable. But here's the good news. We are responsible. We are response-able. We are capable of a response. That's a good thing. That means we have a chance. And I see we have two options. One is, we can dig in, justify past behavior, and explain that it's not us. That was a long time ago. Why are we still focused on that? Or, we can acknowledge that there is work to do. And that although we as individuals didn't create this problem, we as a profession have a lot of culpability for the current state of affairs. Look no further than the comment section of some websites right now for proof. And if you can't find it there, just watch Officer Pilner's body cam footage from Wilmington, where he, in uniform and on duty, and talking to a supervisor, begs for civil war to slaughter blacks. In that context, 
I see our only option is to follow the example of Willy Brandt. To acknowledge the past, disavow any support for those ideals, and promise to find ways to be better. I have a growing belief that the entire nation would be far more inclined to support us if we could just acknowledge the simple truth that sometimes we get it wrong. The squadron has always been about growth and development of the individual officer, as you as a human, not about public policy or organizational management theory or the larger criminal justice system. It's just not where my interests lie. But it seems we are at a moment where individual responsibility is going to be required on a scale we haven't experienced yet. Individual responsibility needed for policy change and engagement in reforms that are absolutely certain to happen. If we are to have a seat at the table, individual responsibility will be essential. And we must demonstrate it openly, consistently, and courageously. So what can you do to be response-able? First, acknowledge that change, however difficult, is inevitable. Two, recognize that policing itself has been constantly changing for over 120 years. I just bored you to death with a short version of policing history earlier, where we went from political to professional to community-oriented. It's constantly changing. Understand that you're living in an era of change, and there are decisions to make. Do you want to be on the wrong side of history, or do you want to be on the right side of history? The fourth way you can be response-able is that not all reforms will be plausible, reasonable, or logical. Patience will be required as issues make their way through the courts and the legislature, and we adjust accordingly. Next, understand that you have far more power and influence over public opinion than your leadership. This is the dirty little secret about policing. The chiefs and sheriffs actually have very little control over their officers. And they have very little control over the outcome and output of those officers. They can make policies and laws, but when it comes down to whether you're a jerk to somebody on a traffic stop or not, the chief has almost no control over that. It's all on you. And those that interact with the public the most have the most influence over public opinion as a result. Use it carefully. Six, never tolerate anything less than complete professionalism from yourself and your peers, even off-duty. Yes, that doesn't prevent attacks or violence, but it might reduce the chance. It might prevent someone from being provoked into attacking you. But it certainly avoids issues like we saw in Wilmington, where a supervisor chuckled at his partner's calls for the race war. That's an easy win. If we don't tolerate those things in our behavior and in those we work with, that would never occur. Next, train and study not just firearms arrest and control and tactics, but search and seizure, case law, and department policy. Become so knowledgeable of your profession that you truly are a professional and that you're capable of teaching and correcting others. Lastly, work hard to embrace the very real possibility that there is a better way and that likely neither side has it figured out. That new ideas, laws, tactics, and strategies will come and go, but they do deserve some attention and some consideration. Which brings me back to that Aristotle quote 
I shared at the beginning. The reform movement has presented a lot of strategies for reducing violence involving the police and a lot of ideas about how to hold police accountable. And the broader calls to defund the police to divert resources to social services have some valid arguments about how involved the police should be in our daily lives of the public. Jim Glennon of Caliber Press and a former guest of the show did a fantastic job detailing some of these policy issues in an article he wrote on Caliber Press. And he did a far better job of breaking it down than I ever could. And I'll link to it in the show notes. For all the bluster and rage and demands for change, the ideas and propositions have been disproportionate, disappointingly cliched. Rushing to change police behavior that is the result of something much deeper than implicit bias or even systemic racism is a mixed, missed opportunity for real and courageous shifts. One that I'm not quite sure those demanding change have any real strength to see through. So again, it's left to us. When the call came out, I was only a few blocks away. I knew that despite a fire station being only about a half mile from the house, I'd beat them there by at least a few minutes. You see, the way a fire station functions, you've got to get three to six guys onto a rig before it can leave the station. That's six pairs of turnouts, six pairs of boots. It can take a while. It's not their fault, it's just how it is. Me? I ride solo and with everything that I need for the shift. It was night shift, about 10.30 at night, and the quiet street didn't have much lighting, so making out the addresses was tough. But on this call, I didn't need numbers to find the house. I knew I was at the right house when I saw the catatonic middle-aged woman standing in the driveway, wearing a hastily tied and ragged robe over pink pajamas and slippers that had floppy-eared elephants on them. And she had a cordless phone pressed to her ear. Her mind was completely locked on the events that were going on inside the house. She wasn't much used to me, so I continued past her, leaving her there for the fireman to find in a few minutes. I entered the house and heard nothing. It took a moment to pick up on the rhythmic thumping I recognized as CPR that was coming from the second story. I climbed the stairs past the framed school photos and family vacation snapshots. A happy family, and a particularly happy son, posing during a family camping trip. A school photo in his letterman jacket, a high school graduation photo, and a college graduation photo. I followed the pulsating sound up the stairs and around the corner to a bedroom. The bedroom was empty, but it led to a bathroom where I saw a pair of shoes pointed skyward that jerked to the rhythm of the CPR I heard. I entered, and in the harshness of the fluorescent lights, found a father not much older than I was, performing CPR on his son, who was not much younger than I was. I've seen CPR performed dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. I have stood witness to the power of my fellow humans as they brought people back to life. I've done CPR myself more times than I can count, but I myself, I've never won. But in all the calls where I've seen CPR performed, held the IV bag for the medic, or sent electrical shocks into a stranger, I had never endured watching a parent perform the last acts of hope on their own child. 
If you can imagine a moment where love and fear coexist in equal strength, this was it. I thought of my own son, only two at the time, and how I would likely have no ability to maintain my composure in such an event, despite all my professional training. And that's certainly what struck me about this father. He had no formal training, no interest in the medical field, and certainly no desire to see the gruesome action of performing CPR on a dead man purging vomit. Yet, his method was rehearsed, as if to suggest that he had been preparing for this moment. This was the day that he was going to have to try and save his own son's life. This was his final exam. He knew this day would come, and he came prepared. I could not have improved his form. Knuckles intertwined just off the sternum and over the heart, and his rhythm was as steady as a metronome. I was in the unusual spot of being obsolete. The agility that allowed me to arrive early and first comes with a price. I don't carry with me the training nor the tools to perform advanced life-saving maneuvers. I cannot administer medicine, and the best diagnosis I can provide might come courtesy of a Google search and training as a coroner. But training as a coroner only teaches you how people died, not how to make them survive. The one thing my training did tell me was that the man lying on the floor was going to die. Out of courtesy, I didn't share this information with Dad, who continued to pump away with vigor and optimism that I just didn't possess. But again, this was his son, not my own, who I knew to be sleeping soundly. This father was counting to himself as you do when you're performing CPR, and he'd already broken a sweat. I introduced myself meekly and made an excuse to retreat to the driveway to assist the medics when they arrived, leaving behind a half-hearted, <clears throat> keep it up, as I left. There was nothing I could do that wasn't already being done. The father's efforts had become more desperate when I re-entered the house as he began to understand what I already knew. The odds were long and they were particularly stacked against this young man, suicidal, medicated, suffering a breakup, and perhaps most tragically, a heroin addict. As I took my first pause since I got there, I saw the leather belt wrapped tight as a tourniquet and laying next to and on his left arm. Now my eyes seemed open to the evidence of heroin use everywhere, but that what was missing was the needle, which was nowhere to be found. This suggested to me that this man was making an attempt to hide his final shame from his parents, which was that he had used his crutch to end himself. This young man, Adam, had struggled with heroin addiction beginning in college as he self-medicated through a deep and dark depression. He was such a bright student that he was able to hide his debilitating addiction through a bachelor's degree, and his parents didn't suspect something was amiss until he began working with his father. Hampered by depression and ADHD since early adolescence, Adam had sought the private solace of heroin over the public shame of prescribed SSRIs. Adam had limped along in his 20s but had recently begun to find his footing. After a relapse, he moved back in with his parents so they could keep a watchful eye on him. A late bloomer, Adam had finally begun dating and he was in a serious and stable relationship for over a year. More importantly, the relationship was with a non-addict. Most addicts will tell you kicking a drug leaves an internal void. They may identify the longing for the dopamine-inducing effects of their particular narcotic, but it can leave voids in other areas. War veterans and others who've lost appendages will often describe the sensation of still feeling the presence of the lost limb, a phantom limb. 
The limb is most certainly not attached anymore, but the brain still perceives its immediacy despite all the visual evidence to the contrary. For addicts, their addiction is their phantom limb. Social life is upended and rearranged for a recently sober addict. Friendships perfectly acceptable in drug circles become dangerous and illicit liaisons when struggling with sobriety. Yet, for many addicts that burned bridges, scorned family, and sidestep normality, it is their only opportunity for friendship and human contact. Users are, after all, still human, and those struggling with sobriety still seek human interaction and crave it like we all do. Humans are not isolated creatures. We're social beings inclined to, see, inclined to seek social inclusion and acceptance. For addicts, that acceptance is likely to be found with other addicts. This alone is a common reason for relapse. In my experience, Adam's particular circumstances provided the best possibility for achieving sobriety. A loving family that, having suffered the failures of denial earlier, had a renewed approach to Adam's addiction with immediacy, love, and earnest effort without the self-defeating enabler tendencies. Adam was educated, and he had job prospects, and a steady employment, and he appeared to enjoy it. His family was capable of supporting the financial burdens of rehabilitation and therapy. If anyone could succeed, it was going to be Adam. However, Adam's Achilles' heel was his depression. In the waning moments of this man's life, I was surrounded by pain. I realized there that in some respects, I and every other American had failed this man I'd ever met. Despite never being arrested, never being mandated to drug treatment, or otherwise interacting with the criminal justice system, we as peacekeepers had failed to prevent this. The blame is not entirely ours, of course, but I certainly felt culpable. I'm a law enforcement officer, a cop, but in the language of the California Penal Code, I'm a peace officer. My job, my duty, my oath is to keep the peace. The traditional counter to peace is noise, be it literal, like your neighbor's keg party, or figurative, like the white noise and interference caused by victimization. The goal of law enforcement is to, quote, keep the peace. Everybody knows that. It has always made sense and that peace and noise are the duality that I work in. When peace is present, there is no noise to respond to, either literal or figurative. It is, of course, impossible in any society to consistently maintain the peace. And when noise disrupts our lives, I'm the one sent in to return the peace and remove the noise. As I stood in Adam's bedroom looking at the bookshelf, I came across the spine of Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point. This book exists on my own bookshelf, and it was there in a dead man's bedroom that I had my own tipping point. The absence of peace is not noise. The absence of peace is pain. When we as peace officers cannot react fast enough to keep the peace, pain festers in our absence. When we fail to keep the peace, we may cause pain due to our shortcomings. When we stop external disruptions to peace, we alleviate the pains of victimization, fear, and anxiety. The fear of a child afraid to walk to school in a rough neighborhood is a real pain and as real as the needle prick of an immunization. The apprehension a woman feels walking alone to her car in the dark is a very real pain. The anxiety, anxiety caused by living in a neighborhood where gunshots are common creates intense psychological pain and stress. Consider what happens when that child is jumped, that woman sexually assaulted, or that house is peppered with bullets. And it's easy to see that crime is pain. 
As these external influencers wear on a person, the anxiety and real physical pain seep into their being as they internalize the pain. Years of real or perceived victimization, fear, and anxiety induce this internal pain. For peace officers, the most difficult peace to keep is internal. These disruptions inside people that deteriorate their will, their dignity, their identity, their compassion. This is not to say that the presence of the police is the cause of pain, though that surely is true in some circumstances. The point is that we as police officers are tasked with keeping the peace, and hence preventing, eliminating, and reducing pain. This is a monumental challenge, but one that generations of law enforcement have attempted to answer through various means. The problem, as I now see it, is that the paradigm of law enforcement remains stagnant. Despite new tactics, the intents remain the same. And this is not the fault of those in uniform. Despite technological advances like CompStat and intelligence-led policing models, punitive action has been the only acceptable output provided to law enforcement officers. been the only metric, the only tool we've ever used to gauge our success. The proof that punitive action is our only option is seen on our duty belt. A gun, a taser, handcuffs, pepper spray, a baton, those are all necessary tools that rightfully have their place in self-defense or the defense of others. However, we don't carry tools capable of a good offense. We truly seek to keep the peace and create lasting change that we need to find the tools for a good offense against pain. Those tools likely won't be carried on any duty belt, but will be maintained in our hearts and minds. New government is collaborative government. Technological advances and new ways of thinking can become force multipliers if our goal is to truly keep the peace. Peace is elusive to many and sometimes our only hope is using external persuasions and coercion to achieve results. Court-mandated drug treatment is one example where we are able to use what I call positive coercion to achieve internal peace. Law enforcement has traditionally considered allied agencies to all fall within the criminal justice system. The district attorneys, state prisons, local and federal courts, probation departments, all agencies that can only bring coercive tools to the table. We must open the discussion to non-traditional partners who have the opportunity to mitigate, eliminate, and prevent pain. Agencies and non-governmental organizations such as social services, alcohol and mental health, public health, Veterans Administration, the Red Cross, Welfare, Housing and Urban Development, Urban Planning Departments, and more all have an opportunity to positively influence the lives of citizens. And perhaps they may be responsible for removing some of the pain. However, each of these agencies functions within their own worldview and with their own objectives and goals. These outside partners don't function from a crime prevention perspective. But when they're working correctly, that's actually exactly what they're doing. The only agency that has the capability to focus on systemic crime prevention is law enforcement. Therefore, law enforcement leaders must accomplish the daunting task of enlisting these other agencies to achieve our common goal beyond enforcement. It's my belief that law enforcement must take ownership of the issue and create a long view approach that keeps the peace and that begins far earlier than our current models. DARE and Police Activities League programs are really our only main intervention strategies. And DARE has largely been shown to be completely ineffective, and PAL programs intervene with high-risk youth. But here's the truth we all know. If we're attempting to intervene with youth who have already been identified as high-risk, we've already lost. It's like giving your child a sex talk when they're already in their mid-30s with two kids. You're too late. Law enforcement leaders, chiefs of police, sheriffs, district attorneys, 
must lead these efforts because we are the only agencies with the unilateral capability to intervene and restrict the fundamental constitutional rights of citizens. However, there is a duality to our oath that is unique to our position and one that must be recognized, discussed, and honestly honored with humility. What if we shifted our thinking? If we tried to hack the problem with a change in paradigm? What if we could enforce the law and create peace by seeking ways to defend citizen rights? What if the police, who already have the ability to create coercive intervention via incarceration or punitive action, were able to add to their duty belt the ability to create coercive rehabilitation? What if we could go even further and find that peace officers have the standing and authority for preventive intervent, preemptive intervention? Or if not, the police and other social service that operates in our place in these areas? What if we could achieve intervention without coercion, but with cooperation? What if peace officers could eliminate internal pain before it manifests itself as external pain? What if we could achieve the absence of pain? The solution to a complex problem is going to require a complex answer, and people don't like complex problems and loathe even more a complex answer. I know very little about most things, and even less about everything else, but I know this. In 15 years of law enforcement, I've found the common element in every call for service I've ever responded to. It's the same element that's seen out on the streets right now and in the news, expressed productively and with passion, and also with rage and misguided destruction. It's the most dangerous element on earth, and people are far more volatile than a Molotov cocktail. It's dangerous because people will do absolutely anything in their power to avoid it. In my experience, they would rather overdo overdose in front of their kids, pass out drunk in the gutter, hang themselves from their high school bleachers, beat their wife, stick a needle in their arm, or smash windows and throw bricks rather than acknowledge its existence. Because acknowledging it and then knowing what to do about it are the two constant pressures humanity has faced since we developed consciousness. What do we do about pain? Disorder, disease, dis-ease, the absence of ease, and destruction are not products of anger or injustice. They're symptoms of pain both individually and collectively. Pain exists in both chronic and acute forms, and to complicate matters can be obvious or hidden. Often obvious to others, but hidden from ourselves. But more likely, and more well known to us privately, and hidden publicly. When we exist in this space, our nerves are scraped raw, our anger is thinly veiled, and our compassion cannot be mustered without significant effort. Pain is ingrained into every human's experience. It's a certainty that we all suffer. I've spent 15 years talking to addicts and abusers, the homeless and the hopeless, and everyone in between, and I've learned that pain is a close cousin of fear and hope. We fear more pain will come to us, and we hope to someday relieve ourselves of the torment. For most of, our, for most of us, this manifests in small ways that are manageable and reasonable. However, our psychological and physical tools for managing this pain remain archaic and rooted in our primal instincts for fight or flight. In both fight and flight, humans can go in two directions. They can direct their efforts internally or externally. Fundamentally, this creates four options for a human to react to a negative input of pain. 
They can fight internally or externally, or they can flee internally or externally. When people fight internally, they manifest depression and mental illness, which is, of course, either rooted in or exacerbated by pre-existing chemical imbalances in the brain. The fight occurs between their two ears. When people fight externally, we see the obvious assault of an aggressive behavior, but we often miss the more subtle attacks of bullying, ostracism, and racism. Then there's flight. When people flee internally, they seek the solace of that needle or a bottle or any of the other escapist behaviors. When people flee externally, they literally run, run away. Sometimes it's from the cops, but it's often from their families, their careers, or their friends. To complicate matters, any four of these behaviors can coexist with any of the others in varying degrees of potency that are never stable and always shifting. It's only when these behaviors become gregarious that the cops are called in. This is the key point of friction between nearly all contact between the police and the public. It's often mischaracterized by cops when we say, we see people at their worst. It's not just disingenuous, but it's not correct. We don't see people at their worst. We see them when they're in their most pain. When Douglas Hurley and Robert Benkin left Earth's orbit a few weeks ago aboard the SpaceX Crew Dragon, they had to travel through a phase of flight known as Max-Q, short for Maximum Dynamic Pressure. It's the moment in spaceflight when the maximum amount of physical force is applied to the vehicle by the atmosphere shortly after takeoff. Any more pressure in the vehicle is in danger of breaking apart and exploding into flames. And to pass through this crucial moment of flight, the crew backs off the engines and slows down to adjust to their surroundings. However, if they back off too far and apply too little pressure, they may not generate enough force to leave the atmosphere. They have to get it just right. That's a pretty good metaphor for policing, actually. A large portion of police action takes place against an individual's max Q, that maximum dynamic pressure. They are literally maxed out and cannot take additional pressure. The external pressures of the world and the internal pressures of the psyche prevent room for feasible for a feasible abort plan. Then the cops come along, and with the limited tools to choose from, attempt to apply just the right amount of pressure to cajole the problem into a solution. When it works, and it works far more often than it fails, Good police work is more like a ballet than a cage match. Yet, when we apply too little pressure, we're accused of not doing enough, or callousness, or predilection to donuts and naps. Admittedly, sometimes these characterizations are unfortunately accurate. But often they're not. Even worse than too little pressure, sometimes we come in too hard and we exceed that individual's max Q. We cause damage, injuries, or more pain. We can do this with a single individual, a community, a city, a nation, or even as we've seen in the international protests, an entire civilization. One act of exceeding Max Q in Minneapolis can literally make everything go up in flames. But just like a space capsule, the pressure of policing and democracy goes both ways. To carry forward the metaphor, being a cop is not dissimilar from being a SpaceX astronaut. There's a lot of garbled radio traffic, awkward outfits, public attention, and a persistent yet vague feeling you could almost die at any moment. And like Bob and Doug in that capsule, we're rocketing towards the unknown. Except, that's not really accurate. Space, for all its vastness, is actually a known entity. How else can they design, build, and program a rocket to to propel a space capsule up to the International Space Station? and with precision down to the centimeter, get it to dock 254 miles away from the launch pad. 
There are really far more knowns than unknowns in modern spaceflight, in my completely uneducated opinion. But in policing, we rocket towards a person's cries for help with little information, likely no understanding of the personalities of the people involved, and a public's expectation that whatever we encounter, be it a mass shooter or a lost child, that we handle and resolve the situation with pleasantries and requests, not demands, for cooperation. We don't spend years prepping for this moment like our national heroes did a few weeks ago. Our best training is what we've learned from previous experience. The Academy will teach you fundamentals if you're lucky, but the variety of nuance in the real world is so vast it's like, well, outer space. Anything is possible, except that we don't exist in a vacuum like the space capsule. Quite the opposite. We are surrounded by the people we've both sworn to protect and sworn to hold accountable for violations of the law. The duality of that position is fundamental to modern police work, and despite the cries for change, it's absolutely crucial in a democracy. We live amongst our populace, are married to them, we go to the summer barbecues, we attend church with them, and we coach their kids in Little League. The concept that we are representative of and for the people is as accurate today as it was when Sir Robert Peel, the founder of modern policing, first made the connection in 1829. So, when an officer arrives on scene, they're confronted with someone who is near their own max Q. This may not be obvious, and it may be concealed by drugs and alcohol, but this pressure dynamic is almost always there. It's so palpable to any cop with time on the job because we've all experienced the volatility. But if you've never been at a similar max Q, the person might even appear cooperative. In fact, they may very well be for the entirety of the whole police contact, and no one will ever know how close they came to exploding in their space, not even the officer. Conversely, when an officer arrives on scene, a person is confronted with an officer who is also approaching their own personal Max Q. Despite the belief that we are trained better, we exit the car with our own internal and external pressures, and we couple them with the unknowns of the situation that we're entering. Good officers train for this moment and pass through Max Q successfully, knowing the pressure will subside. Others fail to train enough, stall, and often get hurt as a result. Still others see their attitude and altitude approaching this crucial moment and push the throttle forward, accelerating towards certain yet unknown disaster. In these moments, watching a peace officer break apart in flight is what provokes what we saw in Minneapolis. This certainly is not an attempt to justify the behavior of Derek Chauvin and his co-defendants, far from it. But as the country wrestles with the aftermath of this event and the subsequent protests and riots, it should naturally beg the question, how did this happen? To do otherwise would be to all but guarantee a repeat event of this in the near future. It's been asked in various ways, but I have yet to see any reasonable attempt to answer this question without resorting to broad generalizations or feel-good yet ineffective fixes. This is such a challenging issue, because it's not a police issue. It's a human issue. As previously discussed, pain is guaranteed, which makes it universal. But on that matrix of internal versus external, and physical versus psychological, we are often incapable of meeting each other at the right headspace. My training may help mitigate escalations, but under the right conditions, I may be provoked to discard my training altogether. One possible explanation 
is that I made the conscious decision to forego common sense and professionalism because it's far more likely that I've passed my max Q. Which brings me back to Aristotle. To review, the quote is, The mother of revolution and crime is poverty. But as I said at the beginning of this episode, I think he's wrong. I think a more accurate description is, The mother of revolution and crime is pain. He's wrong, but it's the slightest of distinctions. In 15 years of law enforcement, I have conducted thousands of car stops on people of all races. I've made hundreds of arrests for minor infractions all the way to major incidents. I've stood in the living rooms of the destitute and addicted and the rich and the famous. I've arrested addicts soaked in urine and feces and addicts soaked in privilege and wealth. And the commonality to all of these situations, every one of them, something that is present at every criminal offense and police interaction is pain. For 30 years, we have assumed that social disorder was the precursor to crime. And while that is somewhat accurate to a point, we have the ability to go deeper, and we must. For policing, we need to consider the liberty interests that have routinely won in court against the government's interests in maintaining order, so we need to adapt. People are clearly preferring individual liberty and individual sovereignty to utilitarian law enforcement techniques. Next, we also need to do something that's going to be incredibly difficult. We need to flatten the hierarchies of these paramilitary siloed organizations that we work in and push the decision-making down as far as we can to the street level where the people who are actually interacting with the public have the most flexibility and creativity to solve the problem. This means reducing a lot of the layers and a lot of the things that were put in place to keep control of cops but ironically have also stripped them of all of their uh, creativity and their ability to think for themselves. Conversely, though, we need to strengthen some of the ability of chiefs and leaders in the organizations to run the organizations in the ways that they want. Unions were set up long ago, and civil service was set up long ago to protect individual officers from being singled out by uh, a supervisor that didn't like them or being singled out by a mayor that wanted them gone because they supported the other guy. And there's extremely valid reasons why the unions and civil service are as strong as they are. However, in the absence of, of progress here, what we're seeing are the police unions standing up and justifying why the bad cops should keep their jobs. Lieutenant Kroll from the Minneapolis Police Department is almost a perfect example of this. He has defended the officers, including Derek Chauvin. Keep in mind, maybe the other officers who were on FTO and, and Chauvin was their training officer, and these guys had like three or four days on the job. I get why they were in an uncomfortable and almost impossible, impossible dynamic to follow their training officer's instructions and yet obey the law. They were stuck literally between a rock and a hard place in terms of what to do. And policing culture reinforced a lot of why they got stuck where they are. So I understand maybe some of what their issues are. But I can't understand why the police union president there was defending Chauvin immediately and 
vociferously and with passion and being very antagonistic in the press. He was actually picking the fight. And it seems to be consistent for that guy. And it seems to be consistent for the department from what I've been able to read and what I've been able to learn about him from past issues. So police leadership needs the ability to get rid of bad officers and any good officer shouldn't have any problem with that. As long as there's a checks and balance and due process in place to ensure that the good officers have their day in court and have their day or their day in arbitration. If they feel like they've been wrongly accused of either a policy offense or a crime. And again, those things are very valid because the cops are in a very, very difficult situation where they're tasked with doing things that no other American, no other citizen in any other country. If you're a cop in Paris, you're tasked with the same issues that we are. And the general citizenry has no idea what the dynamics and the nuances are. And we can't expect them to. But they need to have some way of cultivating a good culture. And bad unions are a big part of that problem. We really need to develop what's become known as the team of teams approach with shared accountability, not just with people in the criminal justice areas like probation, parole, and social services, but public health, sanitation, code enforcement, planning and development even. And really, I think what we'll see and what I fully support because I've seen it work is alternative sentencing to avoid incarceration. But I think it's important. We must maintain the ability in the criminal justice system to maintain coercive treatment because it works. Coercive treatment, real quickly, is an idea that you see in a lot of the like drug courts or veteran courts. And it's, it is a form of alternative sentencing where rather than go to jail because you got popped with a teener of heroin, you are sent to treatment. And there's certain hoops you got to jump through. There's counseling you've got to go to. There's drug testing you've got to go to. And people bemoan a lot of these programs. But in my own research, found that coercive treatment was actually three times as successful as when someone checked themselves in the rehab. So it works. The problem is, is that we need to have much more customized coercive treatment options available. And to just that's just kind of a side note, because that is not a police issue. That's a criminal justice and a judicial sentencing issue. It's a, it's a prosecutorial issue, not a policing issue. But I think that it solves a lot of the issues that we get blamed for, right? The police are the front end face of the entire criminal justice system. So we take a lot of the brunt of the criticism. So we need to be coming up with a majority of the ideas. There certainly needs to be more training in emotional counseling and stress management for cops. And there's been some good articles on that recently and some good police psychologists that have come out with stuff on that. And I'll link to that uh, in the show notes. So where do we go from here? Well, I could spend an entire podcast, I could spend an entire year of podcasts on discussing the different ideas, the different proposals, the different policy changes that are being thrown around right now. And that's really not the intention of this episode nor of this podcast, though we will probably cover some of them in the future. The point of this here is to talk about the idea that a massive paradigm shift needs to happen that no one else is talking about and that we need to move from the idea of a criminal justice system to a pain management system because it's the absence of pain that is peace, not the absence of crime. And I think one of the things we can do quickly to adapt to that 
is to really look at history. And really quite simply, we can use a very well-known and very structured and very modeled and very proven method for how we look at how we should be solving and approaching crime. Everybody in school studied Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, you probably don't remember it, but I'll go through it. And I think that the parallel between Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the kinds of crime that we see are so on point that I'm surprised it hasn't been pointed out before, at least not as far as I'm aware. So if you remember, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is basically a pyramid. And as you go up that pyramid, you achieve greater and more difficult, you, you, you succeed in achieving needs that are greater and more difficult. So the base of that <clears throat> pyramid are the basic things that you need to function in life, the physiological needs. So achieving the need for food and water and warmth and a place to rest. And then from there, the safety needs, your ability to be secure and to be safe in your surroundings. You're not going to be attacked by a predator or you're not going to be left out in the cold or you're not going to be left homeless by the fact that you lost your job. And then after safety needs, there's the love and belonging, which is the need for friendship and intimacy and family and connection. And then esteem, which is the needs for respect, self-esteem, status, strength, and recognition. And then on the very top of that pyramid, a point where very few people actually get to is self-actualization. And that's the point where all of your needs are met. You don't have any more needs because they've fallen away. You've achieved them all. And you're able to maintain your sense of self strictly based on who you are as a person. You don't, uh, you're not pursuing these other lower needs so regularly that you come, you dip into them. And to be clear, we come and go from these different parts of the pyramid throughout our lives and even sometimes throughout our days. But it's, it's a very easy thing to understand and a very basic idea about what motivates human beings. Well, the truth is, I have never met someone who's self-actualized who's committed a crime. I just haven't. People who are at that top of the pyramid don't have the need to commit crime. They have uh, rid themselves of all the things in their life that would provoke them to commit a crime. And so we don't deal with those people. But as I'm looking at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I see how there are crimes and levels of crimes that coincide with each of the lower parts of the pyramid. For example, back on the bottom of the base, physiological needs for food, water, warmth, and rest. That's where you see a lot of your civil disorder crimes. Shoplifting for food, some thefts, trespass, illegal camping. A lot of the homeless issues are physiological needs. Then you have the safety needs of security and safety. And you have uh, both physical, emotional, and financial security as well. And the biggest chunk of crimes, I think, happen here. But, for example, the need for safety and security, that's where you see crimes like weapons violations, assault and battery, self-defense. You see financial crimes. You see robbery and you see burglary. All of those are the, the perpetrators need to feel secure and feel safe. Next on the love and belonging tier, love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, connection. That's, I think, why or where you get the motivation for crimes like rape 
and domestic violence and a lot of drug crimes and gang membership and prostitution and, and, and use of prostitutes. And then in esteem, that's respect, self-esteem, status, strength, and recognition. And again, I think that's where you see crimes related to drug dealing, gang membership, high white-collar crimes, and even doping in pro sports. So what does all this have to do with solving crime and eliminating pain? Well, if we could look at crimes and the crime that it's being committed as the criminal's attempt to solve this need, this inherent biological drive, this need to do something, perhaps maybe we could solve the crime itself. And so many of these things in the physiological safety, love and belonging, and esteem needs are driven by pain and driven by the fear of pain and driven by someone wanting to get far, far away from pain. So if we can solve for food and water, we can solve crimes of that ilk. If we can solve the feeling and sense of security and safety, we can solve for weapons violations and maybe assault and battery. We can reduce financial crimes or robbery. That's a big idea and it's a big concept and it's pretty heady to think that we could have that big effect on other people. But as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, everything's on the table and everyone's open to ideas. So let's at least put some ideas out there. One more disclaimer for you too, by the way, I'm not a psychologist, nor am I trained as a psychologist. And my uh, description of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is probably making my college professor roll his eyes at the moment. But that's about a brief and succinct definition of it as I can get. But really, what do we do? Let's work on solving the true motivations behind these conflicts. Let's solve for the pain. And that will require more love than we're currently giving. Solve for the pain. And we do that by giving love. Now, I realize that this sounds absolutely absurd to many of you. We're cops. We're crime fighters. We're enforcers of the law. We uphold the Constitution. So what do we have to do with giving love? Well, where have we gone in the last hour and 45 minutes? I walked you through a quick rendition of the history of policing and how we moved from an emphasis on serious crime and focusing on serious crime to then community policing and getting heavily involved in the lives of our citizens at their request, mind you, right? And how that's clearly not working because we haven't been able to flesh out the idea entirely. And we've relied on the same tried and true tactics that have provoked a lot of unintentional, but in hindsight, very obvious friction and coercion of the general public. We have created, not through the fault of any one individual, but as a system dedicated to enforcing the law and fighting crime, created a system that is overbearing in some communities 
and downright hostile in others. These changes have come about because of legitimate issues in the country. The crime wave of the 60s through the 70s through the 80s brought the pendulum swing into the 1994 crime bill where community policing was really endorsed on a federal level. But so were mandatory minimums and three strikes and you're out and billions of dollars added to the prison system to build more jails. And for much of my career, I've thought that that was the solution to this problem. You can't commit a crime if you're locked up. But as my career has gone on, I've seen the same people come through the door more times than I'd like to see. I've seen young kids get set up into the system because they're a lack of resources and creativity on our end and a lack of caring from the people who are supposed to care for them. And they literally fall through the cracks and into a jail cell. None of this is working. We may go to work, have a great time, take some bad guys off the street, but at what cost? And what are the opportunity costs for what we're doing? I don't have an answer to that question. It's a legitimate question I'm asking you. That's the difficulty with these conversations on a podcast. It's one way. I don't know if it's been worth it. I'd love to learn that it was. But when I started my first day in my own police car, I was convinced by the time that I retired that I'd turn out the lights on the police station on my way out the door because we would have solved for crime. And that, of course, that doesn't take very long to realize that that's naive. Crime will always be there. We're arresting people nowadays that were arrested by the generation of cops before me, and I'm arresting the kids of people that I arrested when I started in this job. That should be a symptom or that should be an indicator of something much, much deeper and much bigger than just a policing problem. It's ironic because as the, on the day that I record this, a poll came out in the USA today. And in that poll, they talked to people and many people support cops focusing on serious and violent crime only. Leave the little stuff to other agencies. So, how when how are we going to do this when the old way that they're asking us to go back to was unsuccessful and the new way that we've tried to use of solving serious crimes by focusing on low-level crimes works, but the public doesn't want it? Also today in Berkeley, California, a city council member proposed eliminating police from traffic and parking enforcement. This is one of those public policy ideas I don't intend to get too deep on in this conversation because it's complicated as a topic and in general. But this is one of those examples of an idiotic idea that is floating around that we need to participate in and we need to be part of the dialogue in. But if we don't come up with something better, we're going to end up with a situation like this. Now, Berkeley can have their parking enforcement. I don't think there's a cop on earth that would argue or be unhappy about giving up parking enforcement. But traffic enforcement is such a nuanced idea. 
And again, the general public doesn't understand how complicated traffic enforcement, air quotes, is. Traffic stops are some of the most violent interactions for police. Many cops are killed stopping someone for what they thought was just a broken taillight or expired tags. And so Berkeley expects to put an unarmed person into these confrontations with people. That just is obviously ill thought out. Just an example, in my time, I've stopped people for simple traffic mistakes who turned out to be a murder suspect who was fleeing and was from out of state. I've stopped more than a few stolen cars for something simple like a broken taillight or tags that were expired or running or rolling through a stop sign. I've stopped a major narco trafficker off a consensual contact, just pulling up and chatting with him and finding him. I stopped a human smuggler going back towards the uh, Mexican border at three in the morning off of a speeding violation. The FBI had been looking for this guy for a long time. And of course, like anyone else, I've stopped countless DUIs that could have killed somebody. So the idea that we can just defund or remove some aspects of policing from the police is absurd. And anybody who's listening who's spent any time in a patrol car understands that. But that's what's going to happen if we don't take ownership of the idea and we become creative. And we also understand that the way things have been working can't be the way things work anymore. I do have some hope, though. In the Seattle Times today, they profiled a current academy class. This is Seattle, where some of the hotbed of this stuff is going on with the CHOP and the Autonomous Zone. The Seattle class of kids showed a lot of optimism. They weren't worried about their jobs. They weren't worried about going onto a skirmish line. There's a quote that I really like from the article. It says, quote, they, they, the kids in the academy, kids, I mean, they're young adults, but They see themselves as a solution to racism and violence in policing, not as part of the problem. It's a great attitude to bring into your career. So the history of policing, moving from professional to community-oriented, all the problems. The history of our interactions and how we're not even a generation removed from some of the outright racism that has occurred in our profession profession and we've got to own that we've got to be responsible for shifting that and then just this week out of wilmington again showing that it's still very very prevalent we need to own that we need to be like willie brandt it's not our fault but it's our responsibility. Aristotle was wrong, but we have the ability to be right. Peace isn't the absence of crime. It's the absence of pain. And I never want to be culpable, but I'm willing to be responsible. There's a lot going on right now, and change is, as you hopefully understand, inevitable. Some of that change is going to be difficult. Some of that change is going to be uncomfortable, and some of that change you are going to disagree with. But I want to tell you something, too. 
without knowing you, without knowing the person that's listening to the show, without knowing you as the, I don't know your first name. I don't know your kid's name. I don't know your wife or your husband's name. I don't know where you grew up. I don't know where you're listening to this from. I don't know any of those things about you. But I do know something about you. If you're in service right now or you're looking towards a career in law enforcement, and this is something you want because you want to serve and protect, you want to keep the peace, you want to help people, then I do know something about you. I know that you're willing to take on a job that the vast majority of the public will never, ever understand. They just won't. It's impossible for them to understand. How do you describe to somebody who's never done it what it's like to chase a man with a gun down an alley in the dark? Or to drive your car 135 miles an hour towards some stranger who needs your help? They can't understand because they've never done it. Most people, good, wholesome people, can't wrap their head around the idea that someone would do that. So it's much, much easier for them to understand and accept the negative things that happen in policing because those things are, they're surrounded by them. Your average citizen is surrounded by the negatives in their regular everyday to day life. And so when those things happen in policing, we're an obvious example that they can look to and say, ah, that makes sense. I understand. I see why they're like that. What they don't see, that's what's important about you. They don't see you missing your son's Little League games or your daughter's ballet recitals. Or your your anniversary with your wife because you're working. They don't see you missing countless dinners because you're pulled and held on overtime to cover a shift. They don't see you coming in on your days off to help with a project in the community. They don't see those things. They don't understand that about you. But I and many others do. Because we've lived this life with you. And so don't give up the pride of the job well done. Don't diminish the efforts you've put into your community because of the bad apples that are making it hard on the rest of us. Hold your head up high and know that the work you do, regardless of what any city council member might say or the op-ed piece will say, the work you do is absolutely crucial to the functioning of our democracy. People rest peacefully knowing you are out there. And the truth remains that the vast majority of citizens support us. Even if they acknowledge and accept that change must happen, they still support the idea of good police going out and doing their job. You have a job that is as impossible as you can comprehend. 
And I know that because of the kind of person that listens to this show, that listens to the ideas that we bring out in the show and the topics we talk about openly, that if anybody who's listening to this show, those people that are out there, those are the people that are going to lead through this change. And I know that about you. I'll end with a quote that I often use in the show. And if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you've certainly heard me say it. For those of you that are new to the show and are still listening, it's a quote from Heraclitus, the old Greek philosopher. And he's speaking about the Greek army. But I think it applies to any situation in any group of people, but particularly to the police. He said, Out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. 9 are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one. One is a true warrior, and he will be the one to bring the others back. Now, I realize that warrior and the idea of a warrior in policing is a trigger word, and it's a sign of microaggression to many. But remove that word. One is the true leader. One is the true guide. One is the true guardian. Whatever, whatever word you replace it with, the fact remains. And it's very true in our profession that 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 probably are just targets. So it's really up to those nine that we're lucky to have to make the change and to see through a cultural shift. But it's going to take the one to make it happen. So how do we solve for this? It's simple, but it's not easy. Be the one.